Overseas now to Afghanistan, where one year of Taliban rule has reversed years of progress when it comes to basic rights for women and girls. Senior Afghan and UN officials tell me that they are very concerned about an even more draconian crackdown coming on women and girls' rights, straight from the Taliban's hardline religious leadership. This is really cruel deja vu that we're seeing the horrors of their previous rules surface once again. International condemnation is growing after the Taliban banned women from studying at university in Afghanistan with immediate effect. The doors of secondary schools are now only open to boys and male teachers. For the first time in more than seven months, Afghan schools reopened Wednesday for a much-anticipated return. Taliban announced girls above sixth grade must stay home. This is a huge blow to women's rights in Afghanistan. Video this morning shows small groups of students protesting or at least trying to protest this crackdown. A rare sight in the streets of Kabul, several dozen women protesting Taliban rule, demanding bread, work and freedom, things they say the regime denies women. But the protest was violently interrupted. The women ran for cover, many of them in nearby shops. What's happening to women and girls in Afghanistan right now is a criminal atrocity. Another week, another dramatic reversal of women's rights in Afghanistan. In March, the Taliban broke their promise to reopen secondary school for girls. Two months later, women were forced to veil their faces as well as their hair. In September, the Women's Affairs Ministry was disbanded. And only last month, women were barred from parks, gyms, and swimming pools in the capital. Less than two years after taking over control, the Taliban have brutally and systematically denied the personal autonomy of every female in the country, doing so with complete disregard for both the human rights of half of their own citizenry and the varied objections of literally every single other country in the world. Girls are no longer welcome at school beyond the sixth grade. Universities have been banned from admitting female students. Women are no longer permitted to venture outside their residence without their face fully covered. And recently, they're not even allowed outside their own homes without a male relative. Half the country is under house arrest. And this comes after the Taliban assured the world it would protect the human rights of Afghan women upon reclaiming control of the state a claim that nobody should have ever taken seriously. And bewilderingly, this horrifying assault on the personal freedom of 20 million people is being conducted within the geopolitical partitions of a state which is almost fully reliant on Western humanitarian aid. And as if that weren't enough, on December 24 last year, the Taliban issued an edict ordering all Western non-governmental aid organisations to expel their female employees and distribute aid to the Afghan population, who the Taliban can't feed themselves precisely because they've eviscerated the domestic productivity of their own economy by arbitrarily sidelining half of its workforce and banning all sorts of routine commercial enterprise, only via men. This weekend, the Taliban ordered that women can no longer work for any non-governmental organizations, including relief agencies. Any such group that continues to employ women will lose its license, according to the economic ministry. 
And while the official attacks on women's freedoms that the Taliban openly admits to are, in themselves, an abhorrent violation that ventures well beyond internationally accepted red lines that warrant intervention to avert state-sponsored citizen abuse, it gets even worse. Reports of sexual abuse, rape and forced marriage of Afghan women and girls as young as 10 years old are increasing. When the Taliban are in a province, it can't be safe. The lives of women were in danger all the time. At any time, they could be a victim of sexual abuse. A woman has been arrested in Afghanistan after accusing Taliban officials of rape. A woman says she was allegedly beaten and raped by the spokesperson for Afghanistan's interior ministry. To be accepted into Afghan society again, she had to become her rapist's second wife. On Thursday, November 11 last year, an anonymous Afghan woman posted a video to social media that went viral. In it, she claimed that the Taliban had imprisoned, tortured and raped her on account of the fact that her brother had fought for the Afghan National Army during the war. By Saturday, two days later, the Taliban released their own video of the woman recanting her allegations, clearly under duress. And then she disappeared. But our guest on today's show knew that woman. She was in her early 20s and her name was Arizo. And she's dead. And then she was arrested and detained again just because she had recorded that video. In Taliban's detention center, she was gang raped and she dies. Our guest on today's show is Hosna Jalil the first ever female to be appointed to a senior ministerial position within the Afghan Ministry of the Interior and a former Deputy Minister for Women's Affairs. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of J.P. Morgan Chase. This is episode three of a new series on the intersection focusing on Afghanistan. Hosner and I sat down in Washington, D.C. on Friday, and we kicked off our discussion by talking about Hosner's childhood and the perils of seeking a secular education in Afghanistan under the previous Taliban regime, before 9-11. Hosner, thank you so much for sitting down with me this evening here in Washington, D.C., especially at 6.30 p.m. on a Friday evening before a long weekend. So I think it'd be great if we began uh, with a little bit of background on your early childhood in Afghanistan. So where you grew up, then I'm really interested in what it was like trying to attend school as a girl growing up in Afghanistan. Thank you so much, Jack, for having me. It's a pleasure to join you for this discussion. I consider myself privileged enough to be able to live different lifestyles in Afghanistan, all the way from village to Kabul's lifestyle as a modern woman. And to be able, uh, and having been able to um, experience different educational systems in Afghanistan, all the way from religious um, studies in a mosque to informal education inside a mosque and then um, getting formal education post-2001. And when you were attending the informal part of that education in the mosque, was that 
allowed or was that something that was going on underground and was it was it dangerous for you to seek that sort of education at a time when it certainly wasn't encouraged and perhaps maybe even was illegal um yes it was purely underground it was a community-based educational program system supported and funded by the international NGOs and international organizations in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, it was taught based on the normal or formal school curriculums, but uh, inside mosques. It was too risky that we didn't know back then uh, what kind of risks we are signing up for or we are taking on. But salute to the courage of our parents who knew what kind of risks we are taking on and they are taking on actually. But still sending us to schools and preparing us, equipping us with the right tools or the right way to behave in order to survive. Yes. And we did it. We come, came out alive. Well, you did quite a lot more than just make it through that process, Hosna. But what sort of things did they have to teach you in order to maintain your safety while you're attending that sort of education class? The very first thing in the mornings and the most important advice that we were receiving every single morning was to hide our books and to show our religious books. If we encounter a Taliban fighter on the streets or if the Taliban are coming to our mosques, to check the mosque, of course, mm. to see what, what we are studying or supervising the mosques. It's a very difficult thing for Western people to understand, given the environment we grew up in. You know, most kids there spend time trying to figure out ways not to go to school. And in Afghanistan, the lengths that you had to go to just to attain a basic education are extraordinary. Once you finished that school part of your education, you went on to university. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you studied uh, and how you ultimately found your way to your first job, um, which I believe is in the private sector, before you went to the government? Moving from my provincial hometown to Kabul um, to get the higher education or attend university, I did my bachelor's in physics, which I loved at that point in time to pursue. But I didn't have much opportunity, actually, to work practically in that field, apart from being uh, in the education sector and teach the theories again to the kids. And there was no practical use of it. I mean, not much practical use of it. One of my brothers is an astrophysicist and based on his dinner time conversation, I'm pretty sure there's no practical use for it either. But uh, Well, no. If I would have been raised and had access to education, but at the same time access to um, work environments yeah. in the West, I would have definitely become a scientist. Mm -hmm. Trust me. That's the best thing to do to serve humanity. But yeah, I mean, just because it wasn't, uh, there was not much space for practicing hard science in Afghanistan. I did my master's in business administration. And after graduation, I started my first jobs in the private sector. Where did you learn to speak English? I ask you because your English is perfect. I mean, it's better than mine. And I don't speak a second language. <laughs> well, I'm humbled, Jack. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely humbled. Um, I think I still need a lot of um, efforts, actually, to improve it. I learned English. I mean, the first time that I was, I had access to English material was when I was doing my education in the informal community-based educational system inside a mosque because it was supported by international um, NGOs. They provided as the material and of course the, the instructors for foreign language, which wasn't ideal or perfect, but at least we started with learning ABCs, our ABCs. So 
Well, you clearly studied very hard. It's impressive, but it also, it must have been an advantage for you to, to be, you know, proficient at English the whole way through. What were the roles in the private sector that you started out in? I started from an internship with a very fast-paced progress to leading a pharmaceutical company in 2016 and 17. Wow, that is fast progress. That seems to be a, a recurring theme in your career trajectory that you've got things done very quickly. I normally consider that as a battlefield promotion. <laughs> I like that. How did you find yourself migrating from the private sector into the public sector and ultimately working for the Ministry of the Interior? The first opportunity I had to work for the public sector for the Afghan government was in 2015, based on a short-term contract to work for the president's office. I mean, I was just eager to sign up for that role because I wanted to see what's going on inside the government sector because I had a very negative image of government sector from a private sector lens. The government was not only unable to provide services, but it was also considered an impediment to growth of the private sector and not being able to regulate the markets. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to grab that opportunity to see what's, what's going on inside the government structures and what are the main problems. So I went there as an industry analyst. Uh, I was there for a few months and then I moved back to, of course, my contract was completed and I moved back to private sector. And then two years later was when I um, um, signed up for my first permanent employment in the government. Yeah. And could you tell us a little bit about that, what your first uh, role was inside the government? Um, I started, I mean, my first role in the government permanent role was uh, working for the Ministry of Mines and Petroleum um, as the director for policy and research. Um, but I was also a big major portion of my portfolio was uh, to combat illegal mining and protection of mining sites, which was um, a joint effort by our ministry and the National Security Council. And then I was promoted from director for policy at the Ministry of Mines and Petroleum to Ministry of Interior Affairs. So when you made that move to the Ministry of the Interior, uh, I believe you were the first woman that was appointed to a senior position within any Afghan ministry. Is that right? Inside the, the um, defense and security institutions, yes, that was the, I was the first woman in the history of Afghanistan to sign up for a rule like that. Mm. Uh, but then we had six months later, we had the deputy minister of Ministry of Defense, another bright woman. But yeah, I was the first one. That must have been quite daunting. I mean, of all the different governmental portfolios, security and defense is probably the two most male dominated, you know, even in America, right? So not only were you facing all of the structural issues with gender equality, but also some very specific ones to the area of focus you were taking on. Could you tell us a little bit about what that was like when you arrived at the Ministry of the Interior, what sort of reception you got, and perhaps just explain some of the challenges that you faced, because I can't imagine that it was easy. Okay, let me think, where should I start from? <laughs> I, I'm remembering, I'm trying to remember my very first few days um, at the Ministry of Interior. I can't say that I was not mentally prepared to deal with the challenges I had signed up for. But yeah, it has been some of the toughest days in my professional career. At the top of being a woman that the institution was not familiar with, 
I mean, the presence of women in, in that structure, particularly in senior leadership level. Uh, my male colleagues, of course, particularly my uniformed male colleagues, um, they haven't been familiar. Although I, I was serving in a very civilian post and I was not in a commanding role, I was in a support uh, portfolio to the forces. I was a female, which was the biggest issue, of course. I was a civilian. There was a big clash going on between uniformed colleagues and civilian colleagues, civilians being minority in the institution and being pushed back by the uniformed colleagues. And then, of course, my age was an additional baggage that I had carried with myself inside the institution. We reached to a point in a few weeks, we, I had reached to a point where I was, my access to information and documents were limited. And the very common answer I could get was that the information and documents are classified. What could be classified from interior minister's deputy, who herself is writing the document classification or information classification policies. So you were in charge of the compartmentalization and they told you that you weren't cleared for stuff. That's right. And interestingly, my predecessor was not having any sort of limitations mm. in terms of having access to um, information or documents to a level where my senior colleagues, mid-level management, particularly uniformed, they would have left my meeting, the meetings that I was leading. They just get up and walk out. Yes, just walking out without telling me anything uh, or without expressing themselves even. Yeah, so it, it has been pretty tough, not just because of the lack of acceptance and yeah, not, not being able to be accepted there, just mm -hmm. going there and not being accepted, not being even respected just because you're a woman, you're young and you're a civilian. It affected my productivity, not just my morale. It affected my productivity. And that was something that I could prove myself, not just for myself, but for those who are supposed to come after me. I could keep the door open. If I would have been productive, if I would have been effective in that institution, I could keep the door open for other women to come and join us. I had signed up for a much bigger mission than just having a career choice. It wasn't just a career choice, choice for myself. It was a much bigger mission that I had signed up for. There has been hundreds and thousands of women who looked up at me. My failure would have been their failure. So for me, being productive, staying productive, but at the same time proving myself was a big deal. And the, the mistreatment that I was receiving, that was affecting my productivity. That was the main concern I had. But yeah, that has been the, the uh, worst days of my professional life, the, the, the darkest days of my professional life. But the major allies that I had have been our senior, uniformed, particularly general level male colleagues, some of them. I can't say all of them. I was fighting another fight with those who have been serial harassers and corrupts. Um, of course, I, I never expected acceptance or respect from them because we have had two different paths to, to go with. Of yeah. course, we have been speaking two different sets of values. So, but there has been a huge number of uh, senior uniformed colleagues and, and mid-level and even the grassroots level uniformed colleagues who I was working with very closely. So all I can say is that I didn't start it well, but I ended up, I ended it well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about that. How did it end? The last few months before I leave the ministry and I move on with my, I continue with my career in another institution. I was working with our commanders at the provincial level. I was working with our uniformed and civilian colleagues in the headquarter, senior level, mid-management level and junior levels. 
And they have been working so passionately, coming yeah. up with ideas, being very passionate about their ideas, pitching their, their ideas and coming up with solutions. And to be very honest, the, the barrier between us, me being a young woman and civilian, that was somehow shaky. Yeah. That wasn't as strong as it used to be. Yeah. So, I mean, I considered that as a success. And I was hoping that I was the first woman, but there will be a second woman coming after me. But, uh, well, it didn't happen. I think it'll probably be very interesting to, to people. It certainly is to me that you face that level of gender-based discrimination in that role. Because the impulse uh, as a Westerner is to think about Afghanistan in pretty simplistic terms which is Taliban bad. They're the, the group that is really assailing the rights of women. Afghan national government, not perfect, but promoting the interests of women. But it's, it's an important reminder that all Afghan women are really asking for is an opportunity here. But once, you know, that opportunity is provided, it's still, there's a clear, there's a very, very long way to go. Um, which I think it makes it all the more admirable that people like yourself are so passionate in fighting for that opportunity. The reason that we have been insisting on keeping the previous governance form um, or the previous government structure before the Taliban was because it was a platform. It was a foundation for us. It didn't mean that we had anything ideal. Or the situation or the environment for us has been perfect. No, not at all. There has been, I mean, we anticipated that there's a long way to go with being accepted, being respected, and taking the fight or the battle to a professional level. We knew that. But that was, I mean, the bright side of having a structure or the foundation was because we could think like, okay, in a few generations or in a few decades, Things are going to be different. There will be maybe slow progress, but there will be progress. What happened with the Taliban is we no longer have that foundation. That's the problem. Yeah, no, it's, it's such an important point. So if we move now to talk a little bit more about the withdrawal itself. So you were in the States when, when, the, when the withdrawal occurred. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about why you were here? And I'm also very interested to, to learn about how you found out about the full exit and whether or not you were surprised by the manner in which the U.S. decided to draw down its presence in Afghanistan. When the previous Afghan government collapsed, I was in the U.S. for a fellowship with the plan, actually, to go back and serve in the security sector. But then two months later, the Afghan government collapsed, Taliban took over, and I could never go back. And just hoping to, to be able to go back to Afghanistan one day. When it comes to how surprising was it, I mean, the, the timeline for the withdrawal of the U.S. Uh, forces and, of course, the international forces being led by the U.S., it was pretty surprising for two reasons. The first reason is because the Afghan government, we on the Afghan side, we miscalculated on our part and we have been in a denial that the U.S. forces may leave. When it comes to the withdrawal of the forces, when we say they may not leave, we thought that it will be a gradual withdrawal, not like a rushed withdrawal, like all of a sudden everyone disappears. We didn't think so. That's the first thing. Another reason that I think made the uh, withdrawal and Taliban's take over, I mean, in a very short span of time, and what made it more surprising was we worked with our international counterparts 
which was composed of the U.S. forces and other international forces. We worked for them for at least the last few years on a couple of strategic documents that included the post-peace policing based on the on a, on a couple of scenarios. And the main assumption was that the U.S. will withdraw, but we did not anticipate a rushed withdrawal again. Right. So we have been working with them, but we did not receive any sort of clue or hint that it is going to be a different sort of withdrawal. Let me touch on that because I think that's such a fascinating anecdote to explain how well this was communicated. So just so I'm clear, in your role at the Ministry of the Interior, where the Afghan National Police was in the purview of your portfolio, you were working with Western partners on a scenario analysis of how to maintain law and order post a drawdown of the US presence. So within any of those scenario analyses that you conducted with your Western partners, did any of those scenarios include one where the United States would fully withdraw all of its military personnel in the space of six or eight weeks? Uh, the full withdrawal was part of it, but the time frame was it. Yes. Yeah. So it was the time frame that we miscalculated. But the reason that I'm, I'm mentioning that it came as a surprise was, again, because we undermined the timeline for the withdrawal. And again, the reason was because we didn't receive any clue, like literally any informal clue from the forces. One of the reasons for that might have been because the U.S. forces was against, they, they, they themselves have been lobbying uh, against the rushed withdrawal. They also wanted a gradual withdrawal. And they wanted to have a presence in Afghanistan. I do remember that the U.S. Um, forces commander was trying to convince their political leadership to have a more gradual withdrawal. So one of the reasons might have been because they themselves have been working with their political leadership to uh, make the withdrawal based on a different timeline. That's a good point. And but there's a similar takeaway there, which is that it's very hard to understand strategically why you would withdraw your forces in this rushed and hurried manner, having spent that amount of time, blood and treasure. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, but from today, it seems like a very, very um, serious error, right? In terms of how quickly the country sort of fell thereafter. If we turn now to look more specifically at the current situation for Afghan women, I was reading today that in 2011, Amnesty International conducted a survey based on a bunch of fairly obvious sort of inputs as to the freedom of women and gender equality all around the world. And Afghanistan came last. They conducted the same survey in 2021 and Afghanistan came last again. Now, you know, begs kind of a terrible question, which is after the Taliban takeover of the government, it can't get any worse in terms of the rank versus the rest of the world. But in absolute terms, what has happened to the situation of women in Afghanistan since the Taliban took control? Um, Afghanistan, I mean, the, women, the women's situation in Afghanistan has never been ideal. If we look at decades back, there has been a lot of setbacks in the last at least couple of decades. With the civil war, we had one uh, round of setbacks. And then if you look at the women's situation during civil war and then uh, during the, the previous Taliban's regime, the last 20 years, I can't say it was ideal. It was definitely better. But the reason we've been happy with was because we did have access to an imperfect level of services, an imperfect level of 
opportunities. We could express ourselves, well, expression of uh, freedom of expression in Afghanistan for women, that was one thing that I've always considered one of the biggest achievements of the last 20 years. We could express ourselves, we could reach out to a judicial um, representative, even if that would have been imperfect, at least there was something. And those are the building blocks exactly. upon which you can pursue a, a broader program of equality, isn't it? We did have the foundation again. We did have the structures there so that we could improve. We could, uh, I mean, it, I mean, come on, no government across the world has been able to be fully functioning in 20 years. It's too young. It's too immature. Any system. In Afghanistan, it was the same thing. And we understood that as women. We did understand that. Yes, we have been screaming here and there. We have been very loud because we wanted the ideal. That was the goal we had set, but it doesn't mean that we have been unsatisfied with the situation we had or the, the structures and the system we had. I don't think anyone in the world thinks that you're unjustified in screaming and hollering. I think that everyone just worries what the reper repercussions of that might be for Afghan women now. That is correct. So, I mean, on what, what what's happening now on the ground in terms of the current um, uh, you know, situation that Afghan women face? Well, with the Taliban's takeover... Uh, we lost that foundation. That's the first reason that we're grieving for. Um, we, we really worked hard for that for 20 years. The second aspect of it is that there is no life for women and under the Taliban's rule. When it comes to women's situation under the Taliban now, compared to their previous regime, partially it's the same, partially it's worse. The reason that I'm saying that it's worse is because, one, the Taliban returned to power with a lot of grudges and a sense of revenge. The second aspect is that the women in Afghanistan are no longer the women of 1990s. There's a lot of young women, which makes majority of the women's population in Afghanistan, who haven't even experienced Taliban's regime. They are burned in the brighter days of Afghanistan. They have lived the brighter days of Afghanistan. So for them, a setback like that, it is very difficult to absorb. That's also making the situation even worse for them and, and even more horrible for them. But at the same time, if you look at what the Taliban have done to the women in the last one and a half years, they have taken, they've issued 40 decrees in one and a half years, just limiting women's um, activities from their access to education, to access to judicial system, to um, access to employment, and even to access to the basic health uh, care services. Yeah. Just going to a healthcare center. They're no longer allowed to go to schools, to go to universities, to go to a health center without being accompanied by male uh, members of their family, to sit in a taxi, to, to commute somewhere um, without being again accompanied by a male member of, of their family or sitting in a car, the Taliban would stop them and ask them how they're related to each other. Them not being able to express themselves, demand their rights, and if they do, they would be arrested, they would be detained. And one thing in between that I've always considered underreported and not acknowledged is that there are tens and hundreds of women who are being raped inside the detention centers of the Taliban. There are tens and hundreds of women in different parts of Afghanistan being raped by the Taliban. Forced marriages, the rate of the suicide among women, it all has increased. Again, 
we have never had an ideal situation, but it, we did have access to justice. We did have access to education. We did have access to higher education. And we did have access to all those basic services and basic opportunities and the basic right to live a life with dignity. That's what's gone. Yeah, that's what's gone. Are you able to share with us any anecdotes that are coming back to you from women that you know in Afghanistan, which portray some of the brutality that they're facing now? Yeah. Okay, Jack, so I, I try my best to keep my composure and not to break down. Take your time. Um, well, I, I can mention the name of um, the victim because she's no longer with us anymore. She was a young woman, a very young woman. She was the sister of one of the members of the Afghanistan's armed forces. She was being arrested by the Taliban and her only crime was she was the sister of the former armed forces officer, just her family association. She was arrested, detained, tortured brutally. And then when she returns home, she is recording a video of herself and expressing herself about how and why she was tortured. She had every right to express herself. She was a victim for no reason. And then she was arrested and detained again just because she had recorded that video. In Taliban's detention center, she was gang raped and she dies. There are tens and hundreds of these cases, Jack, all across Afghanistan. There are women who are not, who returns back home from Taliban's detention center and their families disowns them. And some of them are being arrested because they take a poster saying, let us learn on the streets. Some of them are arrested because she's a single mom or she's the breadwinner for her family. She's a widow. She has lost her husband because of the war and the armed conflict in Afghanistan. She wants to take back her right to be able to earn money and feed her kids. She's arrested because she demands her right to feed her kids. So those are the cases that I have always believed are underreported. Mm. And then cases censored because it's just not convenient for many. Well, there's two things there, isn't there? The first is that it has to be underreported because of the structure of what's going on with the rights of women in Afghanistan. When you lock people in their homes and deny them freedom of movement, then obviously crimes against that group will be structurally underreported by a mile, right? But secondly, I think among Western leaders, it's been convenient for people to not take the Taliban at their word, but at least position themselves diplomatically in a way that says, okay, well, they've made an undertaking. We will monitor it. And let's get out. But, you know, what you're saying very clearly shows that those undertakings on behalf of the Taliban aren't genuine. Not that I think anyone thinks that they're genuine at this point anyway, but it's, it's very striking feedback. How can that get better? What would have to happen for the position of women in Afghanistan to improve now with the Taliban government? Some people have talked about the potential for the Taliban to give back concessions on some of the 
restrictions on women in order to try and extract concessions of legitimacy from the West. Do you think that'll happen? Or do you think that Afghan women are now in this position into the foreseeable future until there's regime change? Well, I do not believe that any factions in the Taliban, moderate faction or the extremist factions, really believes in any women's rights or have a different definition of women's rule in the society. It's very strange to me that we buy the idea that Taliban are having difference in opinion about women's rights. Just because in the last couple of months, a few of their senior leadership are expressing their frustration from their supreme leader and labeling actually bringing women's education or women's access to higher education in their speeches. I mean, I, I, I can hardly buy that. And, and I can hardly find an Afghan woman in Afghanistan who can buy that idea that the Taliban are divided over women's rights. No, they are not divided over women's rights. They are divided over distribution of their revenue made from customs and border. They are divided over the political appointments by their supreme leader. Their frustration comes from the distribution of wealth and power among themselves having the right to decide among themselves about their own political agendas. And women's right is never part of those agendas, trust me. Right. The reason that some of the Kabul-based younger Taliban leaders being in their 30s and 40s are expressing their frustration is because they want to generate the international support. That is also about the survival of the regime that is serving them better because they're, they might have the political ambition of of course, they have a long way to go ahead with, with the uh, current regime and, and structure. And the Kandahar-based leaders being in their 60s and 70s, of course, they, they might have, I would say, a different opinion over their political structure. There's no genuine reform agenda. So, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, even the ones who are expressing their, their difference in opinion about women's rights, it's all about them being politically ambitious enough to secure or guarantee a few political future for themselves and that the regime, of course, is a platform for them to give them that fulfillment. But at the same time, it's all about economic interest as well. The survival of their regime is going to ensure the flow of their revenue and particularly the international community support and engagement in Afghanistan is going to ensure their revenue from different sources, particularly construction and tracking businesses that they have invested over years. Well, that raises an interesting question, which is how should the West engage with the Taliban in your view? If there is no genuine agenda to actually improve the lot of women, should the international community be taking a harder line approach with the Taliban regime? It depends. I mean, if the West would have been interested to take a harder line in terms of pressurizing the Taliban the Doha agreement wouldn't have ended up the way it ended up with the exclusion of the Afghan government and delegitimizing the Afghan government, being backed by the same West for 20 years yeah. and even established by the same West 20 years ago. I, I don't see that interest anymore. But then when it comes to the engagement, I would say, first of all, the, the international community need to rely on the internal sources of pressure on the Taliban. The second thing is that when it comes to engagement with the Taliban, I mean, the, the, the first priority, of course, for the international community's engagement is responding to the humanitarian crisis. And to minimize that 
um, engagement with the Taliban over the humanitarian crisis is to do it through the international well-established platforms in Afghanistan or organizations which have been present in Afghanistan during their previous regime as well. And they know how to operate and to serve the Afghan people and to uh, meet their basic needs. And the other aspect of it is that the international community should stop assuming that they can use the Taliban as a counter-terrorism force. That would be the joke of the day yeah. for everyone. It is impossible to counter ISIS-K or any other terrorist group in Afghanistan through the Taliban being closely tied with Al-Qaeda itself, even now. Yeah, I mean, after the Al-Zawari drone strike, that conversation is kind of done, right? Well, I should be the last person, Jack, to tell you as an Afghan to tell you that Taliban are having their ties with Al-Qaeda. Yeah. We are learning that from you, actually. <laughs> I mean, from the West. Yeah, not from Australia. We've got intel on different things. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so you touch on NGOs and international organizations sort of being the obvious touch points to push aid into Afghanistan. A couple of things spring to mind. So the first is the recent move on behalf of the Taliban to ban women from working for NGOs, which is a special type of infuriating to me, um, frankly, you know, when they're sort of with one hand asking for the handout and then on the other hand, in some sort of perceived face-saving measure, trying to announce to the world that they're going to stop women from participating in distributing that aid, I think is, is really, really difficult to stomach. But what can NGOs do? to try and improve the situation of Afghan women? And do you think that NGOs should operate in Afghanistan staffed only by men under the new Taliban rules? I don't agree with the assumption that the Taliban doesn't care about the humanitarian aid in Afghanistan. They do. And the moment that international community or the international humanitarian response organizations stops their operation, they become more, more and more desperate. But they also have a very smart strategy to use the divide and rule strategy among the NGOs. That's what they did in 1990s. From my perspective, what the international NGOs should do in Afghanistan to improve the situation and to make sure that they're serving all Afghans, not just men in Afghanistan, is to have a very unified voices and to make sure that they are all on the same page. The Taliban are issuing a decree banning women from working for international NGOs and then inviting specific international NGOs, talking to them to allow some sort of activities, but of course limiting the sectors, limiting uh, the engagement and limiting the service provision, like what kind of services can you uh, deliver to the people. There are NGOs who are allowed to have their female employees, but the approval is given verbally. So it means that they can take it back any moment. That tells you so much, right? That's right. It tells you that the Taliban care about the perception of what women are allowed to do, as opposed to actually what women are allowed to do insofar as it's helping them. Right. Like they know they need the humanitarian aid. They do. But they're still, even in that context, going to these lengths to try and, first of all, project a ridiculous policy, but then second of all, to behind the scenes, not even stand up to that policy if it means that they're not going to get the aid they need. So that's why I'm mentioning that if all the international NGOs speak the same language, the same sets of values and have the same stance, that is the biggest source of pressure to make sure that the Taliban accepts some of the women's engagement and participation, at least in aid delivery. From my perception, if women are not part of the aid distribution and delivery, 
it just basically means that women are not beneficiary of those aid as well. 100%. And children as well, and marginalized groups as well, and vulnerable groups as well. Because in the last 20 years, women have always been the representation and the voices of all those other groups. And most importantly, these are the groups that women represent them in through the international uh, NGOs. These are the primary victims of the humanitarian crisis on the ground right now. So if the international NGOs really wants to serve Afghanistan, the Afghan people, and deliver basic services to them, they should make sure that they are united enough that the Taliban has to accept women's participation and, and presence in their platforms and organizations. Yeah. Have any of them done that? Have any of them said, we're not working unless you let us employ women? Well, yeah. Swedish Committee was one of the international organizations, international NGOs, which have been present in 1990s during the previous Taliban's regime. And I've been a beneficiary of their services as well. They had a very strong stance, and I'm quoting their statement, which is painful for me as an Afghan to agree with, but I deeply agree with. Their stance was that if we have to serve the Afghan men only, we would choose not to. The reason that I'm agreeing with is, first, the primary victim are women, children, vulnerable groups, marginalized groups. And women in the distribution of aid and delivery of aid are the ones who are making sure that all these primary uh, victims of the humanitarian crisis right now are getting something out of it, or at least are considered beneficiary of the humanitarian aid in, in Afghanistan. Second, I mean, I don't see any reason that these international organizations or international NGOs being funded by democratic nations would compromise their core values. Why should they do that? Second. And then third, I also believe that if the crisis is on everyone, there will be a shared pain and a collective voice among men and women. And that would be a great source of pressure on the Taliban. And trust me, that is something that the Taliban have already calculated. And the outcome of not having the humanitarian crisis response on the ground. It's about survival of their regime, trust me. Yeah. And the Taliban knows that. And the reason that I make this argument is because, yes, Taliban might arrogantly stand in front of the camera telling that God will, will help the nation, God will feed them. And we as Muslims do believe that, that God is there, which, of course, God is there. God is going to feed, but there should be ways to do that. There should be means to do that. And the government is one of those means, actually, to make sure that the people are fed. But if you look at the speeches delivered, which is never published or, of course, um, televised or recorded, if you listen to the speeches of the clerics, mullahs, inside a mosque, across the provincial level, that is extremely contradicting their arrogant statements. And they are the ones who are pleading for international communities aid delivery. So it means that they are disparate about uh, making sure that the international aid is not going to go away. So a more coordinated approach on behalf of Western aid organizations where they could get together and say, hey, you let women work for our NGOs or we're all leaving. You have no doubt that the Taliban would say women can work for NGOs. Yes. And that's not something new for the Taliban. In their previous regime, I mean, women were employed by international NGOs. My mother was one of the employees. She was a medical doctor. Huh. Yeah. Wow. So, yes, it's not something new to the Taliban. And it's not something that they are starting the negotiation from the scratch. There are examples that they have done that. 
And even now, why should they verbally allow some of the NGOs, not all the NGOs, which itself is, is should be questioned? Why should they verbally allow some of the NGOs to uh, have female employees? Why aren't they giving a formal approval? Yeah, it shows you that they're trying to have their cake and eat it too from a uh, extremist perspective. They're cherry picking and they're negotiating a case by case, uh, depending on the flexibility of the international NGO. They're negotiating a very customized um, set of freedom to, to every single international NGO. Which just, you know, it's just, it shows you that what they care about is power and money, not doctrine. Right, like, like if you're willing to flex the doctrinal parameters of 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 a policy which is already so controversial and offensive to the rest of the world, if you're willing to bilaterally manipulate those standards with NGOs in a dark room, that tells you everything you need to know about the Taliban, right? right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the last area that I wanted to touch on was something that's come up in a bunch of the discussions I've had recently on this topic has been the potential for a counterattack. So I sat down with General Yassin Zia recently, and he told me that there is quite a large cohort of Afghan veterans who are willing and able to go back and fight to overthrow the Taliban. And, you know, I asked him if he would go and lead the forces and his response was, I'm ready. But the logistics of it are what is very, very difficult to organize now, both in terms of finding somewhere to stage a counterattack from, but also one of the most uh, negative consequences of the American withdrawal, he told me, was that that American beachhead for all the logistics and the contracting and engineering sort of personnel and to flow through is now gone. So one of the things they need to be able to do is to put the planes in the air and they can't do that if they're not able to access engineers and have gas and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I wonder, first of all, whether you want something like that to happen? Like, I mean, is, is, is that part of your vision for how Afghanistan moves forward, a, another shooting conflict? And second of all, what, what would be important to you if there is going to be an attempt to overthrow this regime? What would you be most vocal about emphasizing to the people of Afghanistan if they were looking down the barrel of another period of violence? First, I don't believe that the armed resistance against the Taliban would be able to develop the capability to overthrow the Taliban in the next couple of years. Partially because Taliban do have good sources of revenue. Second, they have, according to someone who has an insider account from the Taliban, they have got 110,000 fighters. At the same time, they are not only well-equipped, but, but also they have inherited the equipments, the weapon and ammunition of the former Afghan forces, yeah. armed forces, and of course, some of the uh, equipments of the American um, equipments and, and weaponry as well is, is left behind. Some of them are, might not be operational, but some of them are. Um, so I would say, yes, they do have good stockpile of, of weapon and uh, equipment and ammunition, which the opposition doesn't have it at this point in time, first of all. Second, I don't also believe that the opposition might want to overthrow them. I mean, from my perspective, they might try to conquer enough territory that they would pressurize the Taliban to be more open to talk to them for a settlement, for any sort of settlement, be it a more inclusive government, be it a more inclusive political system, better policies in terms of respecting everyone's rights, including women's rights. 
they might try to, with the armed opposition, they might try to pressure, right, to become a source of pressure for the Taliban. In no way an Afghan can, can support any sort of process or efforts that would lead, lead to another civil war at no cost. Or Afghanistan becoming a ground for criminal networks to operate. Yeah. Which is right now because the Taliban themselves have a big branch of criminals. It mostly looks like organized crime. Right. If you were trying to compare it to any other sort of structure. But yeah. I mean, their sources of revenues are run by their criminal um, branches, criminal network branches. Yeah. It's like North Korea. Yeah. So we don't want the situation to be worse than that. That's the first thing. Second, yes, if they would be able, I mean, if the armed resistance would be able to offer a better alternative in terms of political structure and a governance, then yes, that is something that uh, people would support. The Afghan people would support them. And even now, some of the people, they are supporting them just because they hate the Taliban. I mean, I'm a big supporter of the women's civic movement. I consider myself on that side. And in no way the civic movement of women can support a warring party. But if, I mean, I've, I've listened to General Zia's interview that you did. If they're recruiting former Afghan, professional, well-trained Afghan uh, armed forces, members of the armed forces, who have been our best that we had and who have always fought responsibly, then that is something that's a bright side of their resistance. That's one thing. The second thing, if they can really provide clear image of what the end of the war would look like, we don't want it to be an ongoing war. Then their resistance will become a great source of pressure with a different approach on the Taliban. But at the end, I think the ideal situation that everyone expects is to pressurize the Taliban enough so that they, they would agree to sit and talk. So, yeah. I mean, I can see the effectiveness of such um, movements only if they would let everyone know what the end of the war would look like. That sounds familiar. <laughs> I mean, th- that's when I would say would be a legitimate resistance. If, if there would be a clarity, like the women, they, they're very clear on, on what they want and how the end of their, their efforts would look like. Mm. But if they would have the same clarity like women, then yes. I mean, we can't support them, but because they're going to be warring party, but end of the day, they can be a second source of pressure. And, like, and to be clear, the reason I joke at the end there when I say that sounds familiar is it's, it's just eerily reminiscent of, you know, the American line on Afghanistan, but that was right. And now in the rearview mirror, you know, when you speak to senior military leaders on the American side, they mostly focus on the lack of a clearly outlined and articulated plan as one of the biggest failings of, of the war effort in Afghanistan, that they didn't know what their exit was. It seemed very important to peg those sort of things out. Um, and it's interesting to hear you say that for the, for the resistance, that will be important as well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they need to make sure when and how they are going to end their fight against the Taliban. Yeah. They need to make sure how in between the process, in between their efforts, how they're going to negotiate with the Taliban and what they nego- are going to negotiate on, 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 uh, with the Taliban. Is it going to be a northern Afghanistan-dominated narrative or is that going to be a nationwide narrative that they are going to push against the Taliban? What sets of values they are negotiating with the Taliban? What kind of policies they're going to negotiate? I mean, it, when it comes to moderation of policies, they need to be clear enough on their end, again, on the, the form of governance, 
on what kind of, I mean, how inclusive that and representation in terms of representation of, of all the tribes and all the um, like different genders in Afghanistan and different walks of life in Afghanistan, what kind of representation they want and inclusivity they want in that government. So, yeah, they need to make sure that all these details are in place. And trust me, all the Afghans would be on their side. The Taliban doesn't have more than their 110k fighters and, and maybe their families. They don't have anyone, I mean, by their side more than that. 110,000 divided by 40 million is a very, very small number. Yeah. Right. And trust me, the Afghans who are silent, which I normally call them survivors, uh, they are frustrated with the Taliban. Mm. Well, I think that's a good note to to wrap up on because that does bode well for a constructive solution over the long term. But uh, Hosna, thank you so much for coming in to spend the time with me on a Friday evening. Uh, I think that you're an inspiration. I admire you very, very greatly for all of the things that you've done fighting for women in your country and the fact that you persevere in the face of extraordinarily difficult set of circumstances now. So I hope that we can stay in touch. And, you know, I hope that somewhere in the future, we get to sit down and do a follow-up interview in Kabul, maybe one day. Thank you so much for having me and doing this podcast on Afghanistan. It is greatly appreciated, Jack. What we are all doing, it's, it's I mean, we are fighting for our own selves. We are fighting to be able to go back home. That's our, I mean, the U.S. is, of course, my, my secondary home. It, it has become a home now. But the emotional attachment to Afghanistan is going to be there lifelong. And just working for the young girls, for the children in Afghanistan, I think that is, that gives a better meaning to our lives. So what we are doing, I mean, not just me, but everyone else, we're just doing it for ourselves. So, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for doing this podcast on Afghanistan and dedicating a late evening, of course. <laughs> uh, that's appreciated. It's my pleasure. And keep it up. I'm sure that we'll be in touch. This has been episode three of a new series on the intersection on Afghanistan. Stay tuned for the next instalment in early March. And until then, I'm Jack Wright, and thank you very much for listening.